Well, in terms of assurance or certainty or joy or hope, there is no religion that even compares or comes close to Christianity. In terms of addressing the human condition, the human situation, Christianity stands light years above all others. Our Father and our God, this morning as we consider the claims of Christ, the claims of our faith, what we believe, we ask that you would lead us into truth. Your word is truth. We thank you and praise you for your word. We also, Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy, that you are an amazingly gracious and merciful God. We realize that you have touched our lives with your grace and your mercy, not because of anything that we deserve, not because of anything good in us, but because you are good and you are gracious and you are loving and you are not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to you. And oh God, we thank you this morning. And we just ask that you would teach us the truth, teach us your ways, and I pray, Father, that our hearts would be lifted with a new confidence, a new boldness, boldness that we might uh, know what we believe, believe what we believe, and be able to share what we believe with great assurance, because our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, has shown us the way. We thank you in Jesus' name and for his sake, Amen. Well, the text that we want to look at this morning is, um, in particular, is John chapter 14. We're going to really key off of one verse this morning, John 14, verse 6. You know, the disciples had just been informed by Jesus that uh, he was about to leave, and he said to them, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and get you. That where I am, there you may be also. And Thomas, one of the disciples, said to him, we don't know the way. And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me, except through me. John chapter 14, 1 to 6. That's our text that we want to look at. We want to study this morning the uniqueness of Christianity. Because uh, when we're talking about the issues of the divine, the issues of sin, and the issues of death, we need certainty in these matters. And I want to submit to you this morning with great confidence that Christianity answers the great questions of life and certainly responds and answers with certainty and assurance with respect to those matters, the matters about God, the matters about uh, the dealing with sin, and the matters of death. And, uh, of course, in the context of the Western society that we live in, R.C. Sproul, uh, in, back in 1978, stated it accurately when he said, with the principle of equal toleration has come the idea that no religion has exclusive claims to truth. That's kind of the milieu in which we live. That, that's how the people around us generally feel and generally think. And in fact, the idea is if you're a tolerant person, you will embrace all kinds of ideas, all kinds of beliefs, but I think it's important for us to know that equal toleration does not in any way equate to equal validity. And uh, because people are tolerant of all things doesn't mean that everything's valid. And that's what we really need to pay attention to. And of course, our world has dramatically changed in the West in the last 40 years since R.C. Sproul 
uh, wrote this intelligent statement. Uh, we have seen a lot of things change. Much has changed. In fact, exclusive claims to truth now is increasingly deemed as antisocial and maybe even barbaric. Um, tolerance, and I, I've mentioned this to you a couple of weeks ago, tolerance at the end of the second millennium, which Sproul was basically talking about, is a transitional state. There is absolutely no way that it's settling at tolerance. It's a transitional state that's being condoned by secularism right now en route to its real agenda, which is a new world order, and that new world order is anti-religious totalitarianism. That's where we're heading. And uh, I, I'm pretty certain that in, maybe in my day, uh, and, and I, we're already seeing some of this take place, that proselytizing or evangelizing will be curtailed, at least restricted, in some ways. I'm pretty certain that's going to happen. I'm also pretty certain that proclamation will, be probably, will probably be mandated out of the public square. I'm pretty certain that, that it will not be permitted uh, for proclamation of the gospel in, in the public settings. And I'm pretty well convinced that the use of public property for religious purposes will be uh, eliminated very shortly. That's why it was really critical for us to get the property across the street um, because the, the expansion possibilities into public space, rental of public space, I really, really believe is virtually over. And um, I, I'm, I'm certain that these things are going to happen. And with all of that has, has come a, an idea that religion is going to be tolerated as long as it's socially benign. And I think we see that fundamentally happening. The, the, the uh, government of Canada is not consulting with the church in any of its decision-making. The, the Supreme Court of Canada is not consulting with the church in any of its decision-making. There's no consideration of, uh, of uh, um, religious belief systems. And religious, religion is going to be fine and per permitted in this country as long as it's, as I said, socially benign, as long as it has no voice in the public market square, as long as... The, the public officials can pat religious people on the head and say, that's very nice, we're really glad that you believe that, but it has no place in decision-making in the real social square. That, I think, is the reality of the world we're going to live in. So with that comes a, um, a mandate for us, and I think a, a, a responsibility for us to really know what we believe and why we believe it, and to passionately believe it, and to really understand the differences because being thrown upon us is toleration, toleration, tolerance, tolerance. And all religions, uh, we, we need to tolerate all, all religions. And we really need to know, is that a good idea or a bad idea? Well, I want to share with you quickly five uh, dangerous beliefs that are not new. They're circulating around. They're old. And uh, they continue to cr crop up around us. But I think we need to know about them and we need to know how to respond to them, I think. And the first dangerous belief is this, as long as one is sincere in one's beliefs. Uh, well, you know, it says in Proverbs 14, 2, the wisdom literature of Scripture, there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. I, I think all of us would really agree that this is a pretty egregious statement, that if, as long as one is sincere in one's beliefs, sincerity does not make something true. I remember when uh, Jordan, my son Jordan over there, was just a little shrimp of about three or four years old, he sincerely believed that he could swim. And so he just launched himself into the deep end of a pool. 
and um, his sincerity would have cost him his life, except that his aunt pulled him out of the pool, and he's here to lead worship today. Sincerity does not make something true. Sincerity is not safe. Sincerity is not a test of validity. It's not a test of veracity. It's not a test of legitimacy. The second dangerous belief is truth is personal and determined by one's beliefs. The idea of personal truth. Uh, Personal truth is, is what we would call relative truth, which really isn't true. Something is true, it it must be absolutely true. Uh, For instance, whatever is true at one time, at one place, is true at all times and at all places. What is true for one person is true for all, or it's not really true. That's why Jesus stated, I am truth. I am the truth. He doesn't just speak the truth, he actually is the truth. We'll talk about that in a few moments. He is the ultimate reality, the ultimate fact. The third dangerous belief is this, anything narrow or exclusive, not open-minded, must be wrong. Well, I can tell you that the claims of Jesus are diametrically opposed to this statement. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, enter through the narrow gate, Jesus said, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. The open-minded road is a road to death. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. These are Jesus' words with respect to the issue of narrow and exclusivity. The fourth dangerous belief is that all religions are basically the same. That's what the ignorant say. When someone says that to me, I realize they don't know anything about religion. They couldn't be more distinctively different. The great religions of the world. I took a a quick survey through some of the great religions of of our world this past week, and I'll submit to you uh, some ideas that, um, and, and you decide whether you think all religions are basically the same or not. Let's start with Buddhism. We're going in alphabetical order. Let's start with Buddhism. Buddhism has no God, four noble truths, and eightfold path. Its founder, Siddhartha Gautama, 563 BC to 483 BC, lived in Nepal. The religion was founded on the birth of an infant child. That infant child was born with grotesque physical features, so grotesque that it was deemed by Siddhartha, by the founder of Buddhism, that this must be deity. So distinctively different was this infant from all the other infants that had ever been seen in its grotesqueness, physically, webbed hands, webbed feet, all kinds of things like this, that they decided this must be the identity and nature of deity. And so in Buddhism, there's 112 physical features or characteristics that deem one divinity. If you attain to at least 100 of those physical characteristics, you have reached into the stage called divinity or deity. There's more to Buddhism than that, of course, but that's the uh, starting point. Buddhism also, in its Four Noble Truths, 
um, idealizes the issue of suffering. But suffering in Buddhism is trivialized. For instance, I could, uh, if I were to say today, you know what, I haven't had an O'Henry bar yet today. I am really, really suffering. That would qualify in Buddhism as, okay, you know what? You've, uh, you've um, experienced one of the Four Noble Truths today. Or the idea of causation, wanting things to be different. If I long for things to be different, if I long for things to be better, oh, you've experienced one of the Four Noble Truths today. Or if I experience the idea of cessation, in other words, eliminating suffering by eliminating desire. If I could stop wanting no Henry bars then my desire would go away and I would have succeeded in cessation of the desire and I would have experienced the third of the noble truths. And then, of course, the fourth is the eight-fold path of right. We won't take the time because this is, my purpose is not to extol Buddhism with you today. There's also Hinduism. Hinduism has a main god, Brahman, but also Hindus have over 3,000 gods. You know that their major laws, the law of karma, which means how I live this life will determine the next. And also uh, Hindus believe in reincarnation, multiple incarnations of the person. There are one billion adherents to Hinduism, founded in India. It is repackaged, by the way, in North America as the New Age movement. It's fundamentally Hinduism, packaged for the Western culture. And uh, one of its major uh, practices is yoga. And yoga, by the way, means union with God. Now, I know that there's been a, a, a bleed into the Christian context with this concept of yoga. But yoga has no place in the Christian world. Yoga is the Hindu's communion. That's what it is. Now, it may be packaged in physical exercise. And, and, and listen, if you want to get physically fit, do gymnastics. Play hockey, baseball, football. But don't practice yoga. Yoga is union with God, but not our God. It's, it's the same as the Apostle Paul preached in, in, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10 when they were going to the pagan temples. And he says, you can't go to the temple of the pagans and then come to the temple of the Lord. What, do you want to make the Lord jealous? That's an act of, uh, participating in yoga is an act of, 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 of jealousy, an act of promoting je the jealousy of the Lord. It's not benign. It's repackaged in, in the West Hinduism. The third is Islam. One God, Allah, five pillars. One God, Allah, and the, Muhammad, the final prophet. Five daily prayers, almsgiving, fasting, pilgrimage to Mecca are the five pillars. Even the Quran does not suggest that all religions are basically the same. From the Quran, this is what it states. It is he, Allah, who has sent his messenger, Muhammad, with guidance and the religion of truth, Islam, to make it superior over all other religions, Surah 9.33. Now, of course, you'll never read anything in the Bible like that. You'll never read in the Bible where there's some statement that says, um, 
Christianity is the ultimate religion over all the other religions of the world. The Quran is clearly and distinctively not divine. And as you read its verses, as you read what's written, you can clearly it's written by human argumentation and debate. It's not, it's not a statement of divine declaration. There's a complete difference. And then in Judaism has 13 principles of faith. Moses is the supreme prophet. God uh, occupies seven of the 13 principles. The prophets are true. Messiah will come, and the dead will be resurrected. And then, of course, the fifth great religion is Christianity. One God existing in three persons, salvation by grace through faith in the sacrificial substitutionary death of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. It stands out distinctively from the other four in its issue, in its matter of grace. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we get into this a little further and the idea of the undeserved gift of salvation. Now, I want you to, to um, take note of the fifth of these dangerous beliefs, which is all roads lead to God. Now, Jesus said that's not true. <laughs> I am the way, Jesus said, the truth and the life. Now, this is being presented to us regularly that all of these great religions are basically a different way of attaining to the same, the one, the only God. Uh, the problem with that is Buddhism doesn't even believe in God. Hindus have multiple gods, and Allah is not our God. And so we have a, a quandary on our hands in this whole idea of all gods, all roads lead to God. But let's consider this from, a, from the tenets of their religious systems themselves. Buddhism claims the way to the divine is by embracing the Four Noble Truths and by traveling the Eightfold Path. The major practice of Buddhism is meditation. Now, from their own description, meditation is this. It's a means of changing yourself in order to develop qualities of awareness, kindness, and wisdom. Did you get that? Their major practice, their major tenet is a means of changing yourself in order to develop qualities of awareness, kindness, and wisdom. I know a Buddhist, and she's not kind, and she's not wise. And it's a movement to enlightenment, to see reality clearly, to attain to the end of suffering. This is the pathway to the divine. In Hinduism, the pathway claims the way to the divine is through multiple reincarnations. If you were nasty in this life, you come back as la cucaracha. And if you're a good cockroach, you might become a frog in the next life. And this and so on and so on to the pathway of the divine. Islam claims the way to the divine is by having your good deeds outweigh your bad at judgment. And good deeds are these, copying Muhammad's life and jihad. Now, jihad, by the way, is holy war in the cause, in any, any holy war, any description of holy war in the cause of Allah. That's considered a good deed that will put you in good stead at judgment. The other is to copy Muhammad's life. Now, if you were to study Muhammad's life, you would realize 
that he wouldn't qualify to be a member of any church that exists. In fact, Muhammad, in terms of comparison to Christ, our sinless leader and Muhammad, there is no comparison. Muslim women would not want Muhammad to come anywhere near their nine-year-old daughters. Let's put it that way. That's their leader. It is good deeds for men to copy the lifestyle of Muhammad. Judaism claims the way to the divine is by the law. The Apostle Paul writes in in Galatians 2.16, Know that man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. The law, remember, the law can only make us aware of our sin and how far we have fallen short of the glory of God. The law can't save us. Only Jesus Christ can save us. And so that brings us to the matter of Christianity. But before we get there, I want to just make a comment on uh, some of the criticism that comes the way of our God, the one we serve, and that is the problem of a narrow-minded God. Perhaps you've heard this before. Well, your belief system is so exclusive, it's so narrow-minded, it's, it doesn't take into consideration the sincere people around. Why is God so narrow-minded? Now, what, let, let's just back up for a few moments. I would submit to you that anybody who believes in life after death is narrow-minded, and I'll explain if, if you were to interview anybody, they all have, everybody has some sort of restrictions or expectations or behavioral qualifications that justify someone, and we've just heard a list of them as well in the great religions, that justify someone for the afterlife or the, the, the life after. Everyone. In fact, no one believes that Adolf, Adolf Hitler is in heaven, for, for instance, other than maybe Rob Bell. So everyone has some sort of standard that they gauge with which one is in good stead with God or the gods. So I would submit to you that everyone is narrow-minded. It's just how narrow is your mind? How, what is your qualifications? So, so, but let's, so we, we, we've put that on the table for those who come at us with this idea of the problem of the narrow-minded God. But let's talk about our God. Let's talk about our narrow-minded God, because really, when the mention of a narrow-minded God, it's really code for God hasn't done enough. Your God, your God hasn't done enough. Well, let's consider our God, the God of creation, the God who created a man and a woman and placed them in a pristine garden called Eden. And in that garden, he gave them everything that they could possibly want. Everything was provided for them by his grace. Everything that they needed was there for them. And not only that, he walked with them personally. They had a personal relationship interacting with the God, the creator God of the universe. He, 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 let, he set down one restriction. That, that one restriction is that they would obey him and not eat of one tree. Now, they had everything. They, they had no need. There was nothing that they needed. But there was just one restriction. And you know the story, of course. They disobeyed God and partook of that one tree that he said they couldn't. 
Now, what we would expect, because God said to them, if you eat of that tree, you will die, what we would have expected is that they would drop dead. But God didn't kill them. Rather, he redeemed them. This narrow-minded God redeemed them. Not only did he redeem them, but he, call, he called them and made them into his people. And he, he, he looked after them and watched over them, cared for them and loved them. They ultimately ended up in slavery in Egypt. And he rescued them and delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. And he was moving them toward the promised land, but, but these people continued to rebel against him, to fight against him. They created their own beliefs, and we, we discovered as we studied the life of the people of God that, that ultimately they were doing what was right in their own eyes. But God still didn't destroy them. He still, he sent to them evangelists called prophets. And those prophets came and delivered messages of God to them. They delivered the message of grace of God. Turn, turn back to God. Repent. Because God didn't want to judge. God's not a judgment God. God is a God of grace and mercy. And he always reaches out with grace and mercy before he ultimately has to bring judgment. But rather than turning to God, they turned to other religions and other gods and idols. But God still didn't wipe them out. He sent his son Himself, he came. He came to live among us, the incarnation. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came, lived a sinless life among us, revealing God to us, showing us who God, who God is. And instead of turning to him, we killed him. We nailed him to the cross. Yes, we did. Humankind nailed him to the cross. He was dying on the cross to pay the punishment of the very people who murdered him. And he asked us one thing, to believe in him, to trust him. From the beginning of the scriptures right through to the very end of the scriptures, it's only been one request of God, believe in God. It was said to Abraham, Genesis 15, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. In Acts chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And then this same Jesus Christ who died for our sins and was raised again to life commissioned us commissioned evangelists to go into all the world and preach the gospel, tell everybody the good news that God is a gracious God, a merciful God. He wants you to turn to him. He wants to love you. He wants to have a relationship with you. Go and tell everybody. Tell of the mercy of God because I don't want to bring judgment. God is, not, God is merciful, not willing that any should perish. I don't know about you, but I can't call that a narrow-minded God. 
I call that a magnanimous God, an amazingly gracious and merciful God. If the people of the world don't know about God, it's our fault. It's our fault. We're not passionate enough about lost people. If every one of us told one person about the Lord Jesus Christ this week, think of the numbers of people who would have heard of Christ. And next week, and the week after, and so on. Think of all the Christians telling other people about Jesus Christ. That's the commission that he's given to us. So how is Christianity unique then as we wrap up this uniqueness of Christianity study? And I have one answer for you. Our religious leader, the Lord Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no one like him. And he, and there are three takeaways that I want you to have that are hurdles to belief for some people. And it's all related to this verse in John 14, 14, 6. And it's this. The first is this. In the person of Jesus, we meet God incarnate. Do we realize this? Christ himself has cleared up all of the uncertainties about the divine. In the, in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1. Listen, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had appointed, uh, provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And as you continue to read down about the supremacy of Christ and how he's superior to all things, God the Father speaks this way in, chapter, in verse 6. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Do you realize how powerful that statement is? The God of glory, the Lord of all creation, the Father in heaven, in describing the Son, Jesus Christ, commissions the angels to worship him. Now, I can assure you, and you know this to be a fact, that the God we know, the God we worship, will share his glory and will share worship with no one. So it is, it's imperative upon us in that, in that verse alone that Jesus Christ is God because God himself is commissioning the angels to worship the Son. I, I thought to myself, I wonder how the JWs handled that verse. So I went to my New World Translation and, uh, it, and, and as usual, regularly, I'm, I'm amazed when I read it and I realize, hey, they didn't tamper with this very much. Wh- whoever messed around and tried to create a translation that the Jehovah's Witnesses use has done a very, very bad job. Because I could lead any Jehovah's Witness to the Lord using their book. Their New World, their New World translation is laden 
with the divinity of Jesus Christ. And it is in this text. If you read Hebrews uh, 1, verse 6, it says right there, the Son will be worshipped by the angels. Now, in terms of a Jehovah's Witness, I, I would just in this verse alone say, now, if what you're claiming now is that your Jehovah, your one God, is willing to share worship with a God named the Son, is that what you're saying? They're never going to accept that. And so the, the reality is here in this statement, the statements that are made throughout the scriptures, in John 1, 14 and 18, no one's seen God, but the, the, uh, the God, the one and only, has, has revealed him, has executed him, has fully explained him, and he has tabernacled among us. Now, let's, once you settle, so that's why Jesus said, I am the truth. He is, in fact, the revelation of God. He's not one who just proclaims the truth. He's not one who just speaks the truth. He is the truth because God is the ultimate reality. God is the ultimate fact. When you're thinking about reality, God is it. He's the ultimate reality. He is the truth. He doesn't just declare the truth. He is it. So Jesus Christ legitimately being God himself can claim, I am the truth. I'm not just one who tells you the truth or just declares the truth to you. I am it. Now listen, once you settle that Jesus Christ is very God, all the other hurdles fall down. Because if he truly is God, if he truly is the truth, then he entirely qualifies to tell all of us the way. Wouldn't it follow, logically? In the matter of salvation, it is by grace alone and not of human effort. Jesus declares that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. I hope we realize that all the other religions are by guess and by golly and by hope so. All of them. I hope I handle the four noble truths and the eight paths all right. I, I hope the multiple reincarnations will somehow get me to the place that I'm going I hope that I follow the five pillars and that at Judgment Day I've, I've followed Muhammad well enough and had enough, killed enough people in jihad. I hope that works out for me. In Judaism, I hope I've kept the law. I hope I've kept the law perfectly. But not in Christianity. By grace we are saved, by the undeserved love of God. It, 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 what's quite amazing is that in all of the other major religions, and even if a person isn't religious, it's always about self-effort and work. I, I've got to do better. I've got to try. I've got to follow this. I've got to do that. But Christianity is by the grace of God. We were drawn into Christianity by the wonderful love of God who by his mercy reached out to us, not because we deserved to be loved, not because we had done anything good. In fact, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and he reaches into our life and pulls us to himself by his grace and then moves into our life and changes us. There is no religion that comes close in comparison to what we believe. It's surprising because the human, by human nature, we all by nature expect that it will be by good works, by effort. And it's shocking to find out that it's by grace. In fact, 
regularly when you're witnessing to people, they go, that's it? Wait a minute. That seems too easy. That, that doesn't seem right. Because the natural mind thinks that I've got to put some effort into this. Christianity says, no, receive Christ and he will change your life. The matter of salvation is by grace alone. He has taken your crime and punishment and paid for it and set you free. What's required is for you to face your crime and turn to the living God through Christ Jesus for salvation. It's called repent. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the message of Christianity. It's not five pillars, it's not four noble truths, it's not eightfold path, it's not a set of laws, it's not 13 principles, it's not by multiple self-do-overs, it's by one sacrifice, the Son of God who went to Calvary and died for the sins of mankind, that whoever would believe in him, whoever would trust in him, who would ever, who, Whoever would set their pride aside of effort and good works and turn in faith to Jesus Christ would be saved. He said, I'm the way, the only way. I'm the truth and I'm the life. In the matter of destiny, the prize is Christ. The future is eternal life with God. Notice I didn't say the prize is heaven, the prize is eternal life. Far too many of us sell the idea of Christianity as come to Christ, have faith in Christ so you can go to heaven. And this is why we have a problem in Christianity. Why people are not living for Christ. Because they're living for after death. They're living for heaven. We've not been called to live for heaven. We've been called to live for Christ. Christ is the prize. Christ in me, the hope of glory. That's what got the Apostle Paul excited. Christ in me, the hope of glory. No other religion promises that the God of the universe moves into your life and renovates it, changes it, changes everything, comes and lives with you. He walks with me, he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. That's who we have. That's the distinction of Christianity. That's the message we bring to people. You can have a personal relationship with the Lord of glory. What was lost in the Garden of Eden can be returned to you through Christ Jesus. Christ brings us back to God. And he's the only one who can. And then, because we are in Christ... And because we have brought back to, Christ, back to God the Father, we are with them forever. We are with the Lord Jesus Christ forever. That's how it works. The Christ changed life. Reestablish relationship with God, with the God of the universe. Life abundantly now and forever. And it's not a guess and by golly. It's not a hope so. It's not I hope I've done enough to earn my right to be there. It is a no-so belief. You can know that you are right with God 
by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and trusting in him. So the truth is this. Anyone, and I mean anyone, can get to God the Father, but only by coming through the Son, Jesus Christ. And that's not just a New Testament concept, by the way, beloved. That's found in Psalm 2.12. So the Jews are without excuse. Erwin McManus wrote this, and I think it's a fitting conclusion before we turn our attention to the table of the Lord. Why does Jesus say he's the only way? Because no one else is coming for you. There is no other God who loves you and passionately pursues you and longs to forgive you of your sin and heal you from your brokenness. Why does Jesus say he's the only way? Because no one else is coming for you. It's Jesus or nobody. Our Father, how glorious is the truth of our salvation through Christ Jesus. How amazing is your salvation. How unnatural it is. How against the thinking mind it truly is that you would love us and give yourself for us, not because we deserved it, but just because you love us. Not because we had done anything to earn it. Not because we had made any self-effort that was worthwhile to you, but because you love us. By grace, you've reached us. And not because we were moving toward you, because we were moving away from you. No one seeks God. No one understands. All have turned their back on you. But you turned our hearts around and pulled us into yourself and loved us and gave us Christ to live in us who changes us and enables us to live a life that pleases you with works now that are blessed of the Lord. So, Father, we thank you now and we praise you and we pray, Father, that our confidence in you would not be shaken by the attacks of the ideas of the world, by the so-called intelligentsia. For, Father, you are the great wisdom of the universe. And in granting us your salvation and in moving into our lives, we know the great truths of life. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the life. And no one comes to you but by him. Thank you for your grace to us, Lord. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. He is coming again. That's what the, the statement in Acts was all about. In Acts 3. As I studied this topic this week, in consideration of Christianity and the uniqueness of Christianity, the magnitude of lostness hit me afresh. The sheer numbers were staggering, really. One billion Hindus believing in multiple gods and reincarnation, law of karma. Probably close to that in uh, the numbers of Muslim as well. Banking their lives on copying Muhammad 
and jihad. Probably another billion Buddhists not believing in God at all, believing somehow they'll settle in the end and not be suffering. Maybe a couple million Jews. And the point of all of this is not so we can pat ourselves on the back and say, isn't it great what religion we have? We have the right religion. The purpose in knowing all of this is that we might have an evangelistic heart and realize that the people who are chasing after other gods are lost and need the truth and need to know about the saving will of God who is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to know him. And so the uniqueness of Christ is in his grace, his desire, his care for the world. So much so that he commissioned all of us to go and make disciples who will make disciples. So can we leave this morning on that note that our commission from this table because of what Christ has done for us is not to feel good about what we believe as much as it is to believe what we believe so much that we tell everybody the truth. Our Father and our God, it's our prayer that all those who believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life and that no one can come to the Father except by him would tell people that. So I pray, Father, you'd help us to be a telling people. Help us to proclaim the truth in season and out of season, when it's not popular, when it's popular. Because we don't live in a society that is going to help us to mobilize the truth. It's something that only you can help us do. And I pray, Father, that our hearts would be inclined to proclaim the truth in these days while things are closing down around us. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.